Hi there, friends. This is Paul. Before we get started on the podcast, I just wanted to take a quick moment to express my gratitude to everyone who has supported this podcast. I really do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I want to thank you for listening, you there in the headphones, uh, whether you're out there for a run, at the grocery store, walking the dog, driving on our cross-country road trip, wherever you are. Thank you for, for being part of this podcast. I really appreciate it. I appreciate Chris Creamer, who gave me the opportunity to write for his website starting in 2014, something I'm still doing today and really enjoying. Everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that's an act of kindness and generosity that I truly appreciate. My fellow podcasters and content creators out there, one of the great surprises to me in doing a podcast has been the support that I have felt from, from other podcasters, other content creators, people who love the sport of minor league baseball like I do, really inspiring people who are creating great content, but also who are just so genuine in their support of one another. That has really been something that I'm, I'm very grateful for. Also, I'm really very grateful to the people who have come on as guests on the podcast, the teams, the front office personnel the supporters of minor league baseball in other facets. And I'm incredibly grateful to the, the talented designers who create these amazing logos that we love talking about and that bring us so much pleasure as fans of the sport. Todd Radom was the guest on my second episode. Jason Klein of Brandios. I've already recorded several episodes where he's going to be appearing uh, in the very near future. And Dan Simon, I have to say a very particular thank you to Dan Simon who has supported this podcast in an incredible way. He reached out to me and offered to create a logo for this podcast. It was such an amazing experience engaging in the conversations with Dan that, that led to the thing that he created that I just absolutely adore. I really love the logo that he created for this podcast. I'm so happy with it. And I'm so incredibly grateful to Dan for supporting this project in that way. It really means the world to me. So I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoy the logo that Dan created for it. Let's get to the podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Baseball by Design. I am Paul Caputo, minor league baseball correspondent for sportslogos.net, broadcasting live from the Helmet Sunday Hall of Fame in my basement. I'm very happy to be joined by someone who I've spoken to many, many times over the years for articles on sports logos. Dan Simon is, I think, saying prolific would be putting it lightly. Dan has developed hundreds of logos, including nearly 100 for minor league baseball teams, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. In our pre-interview conversation, Dan, you just used the phrase from sock puppets to Super Bowl. And I think that that really gives people the the scope of the the work that that you have done and the and the type of work that you've done but I'm looking at the map on your website of the teams that you have designed logos for all over the country and that just the the wide diversity of of minor league baseball that that is represented by your work so first of all thank you so much for being here I'm so glad to be having one of these conversations that we can record and put out there for the world because I've always enjoyed our conversation so much that you know now getting to do this for the podcast is is a real uh, pleasure for me. Well, it's a pleasure for me as well. I always love talking with you about the brand identities that have been done here at Studio Simon, and uh, anytime I have the opportunity to talk with you about another one, um, I'm going to jump at the at that opportunity. Just to to give an idea of 
the range of, of the work that you've done. I'm going to pick out from, from your website, I'm just picking out some of my, my favorite logos in minor league baseball that are all your handiwork here. The Hillsborough Hops, the Modesto Nuts, the Great Falls Voyagers, the Cedar Rapids Colonels, the Toledo Mudhens, the Hudson Valley Renegades, the Charleston River Dogs, the Savannah Bananas, and I'm picking and choosing from a bunch of little flags that you have here. Uh, one that I have to mention because I just love the story so much is the Joliet Slammers, who are named for the famous prison in Joliet, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, made famous, of course, in the movie The Blues Brothers, one of one of just the, the cleverest brands out there. So I want to start with, you know, obviously there are trends right now in minor league baseball towards sort of more cartoony, more fun, more sort of kid friendly. And you certainly have that in your scope of work. I mean, we talked, we already mentioned the Savannah bananas, um, you know, the, the raccoon based Hudson Valley renegades, the Modesto nuts with their sort of cartoon nut logos, but you also do a very serious logo as well. And you, you take to heart the sort of professionalism of the minor league baseball player when when you create uh, a minor league logo identity and one of the examples i think of is the memphis redbirds which actually won one of chris creamer's creamer awards on the website sportslogos.net for being the best uh, best rebrand of the year in i think 2018 i hope i don't have that wrong the the question i want to ask for you is what informs that process of deciding okay we're going with something you know full-blown minor league baseball silly like the savannah bananas you also worked on the burlington sock puppets project which is a great one people love uh or something you know more serious uh you know the new logo for the hudson valley renegades doesn't the primary logo doesn't have the raccoon in it uh certainly the memphis redbirds is a is a more serious brand the saint paul saints which i know is an older one but just purely typographic so the decision to to go sort of cartoony or more serious where, where where's the genesis in that part of the process um, i once had a, a a good friend of mine who's actually a competitor competitor of mine as well his name is joe bosak he once told me a story about something that happened when he was up for a collegiate brand identity project um that and he got that job and the client told him the reason they hired him is because the other firm that was up for the job that had spoken with them prior to Joe speaking with them had gone in there and told the university what they felt was best for the university. Hmm. When Joe went in there, he asked them what they're trying to achieve as opposed to saying, here's what you need. And that really resonated with me. And that informed, frankly, every sports branding project I have done since hearing that story. So the first thing I do when I, when I speak with a team is I want to hear, I want to know where they've been. I want to know where they currently are. And I want to know where they want to go. And I need to understand what their goals are and what their vision is what they're trying to achieve. And then my job is to give them the tools they need to achieve their goals and realize their, their vision. And if that is a, as uh, 
Jesse Cole, the owner of the Savannah Bananas, said it, a kick-ass banana, then that's what I'm going to deliver to them. If what they want is something more uh, traditional, then that's what I'm going to deliver to them. I don't have, I'd like to think there's a common thread that is consistent through all of my work. And I'd like, I'd like to think that that's quality and the, the best work in the business. But I hope I don't have a particular style where you look at it and you go, that's definitely what I see from Studio Simon every time. Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing, right? Because as a designer, you talk about developing a visual voice, but also, you know, not wanting to appear formulaic or, or templated. I mean, I think there are, there are some logos where you look at it and you say, when, you know, when I look at the Hickory Crawdads and you say, Dan Simon did that. I say, yeah, I see that. I see that in the eyes. I see it in there. You know, there's, you definitely have a, an aesthetic, but it's certainly not a template and certainly not formulaic. Where's the line between your visual voice and, uh, and the team's vision? Well, having done a wide range of and, and, and large quantity of sports brand identities, um, over time, there, there will be some similarities between one identity and the other just because it's my hand doing it. However, I'm also charged with making any brand identity should be unique and each team is unique. So the brand identities for their, these teams should be unique. And so I try to bring something unique to each of the identities, something that differentiates it from one I have done previously. Is there, is there an identity that you've done that you think people would be surprised to know was your work? Well, it all depends. It all depends on what they know of my work. Mm -hmm. So there are, like you, 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 you focus mainly on minor league baseball, collegiate summer league baseball, um, and so I would assume, even though you've been to my website, you're you've focused on those quote unquote minor league baseball identities that that I've done. So a lot of people don't know that I've I've done two Super Bowl logos. Uh, there, I've actually worked on four Super Bowls and was fortunate enough to have two of those chosen for the actual brand identity, event identity for, for Super Bowls 36 and 37. Um, I have done, heck, before I, before I got into sports branding, I was living in Los Angeles and working at a design studio that largely did entertainment design. So I've done movie posters. I've done, um, I've done board game packaging. <laughs> so uh, there, there's, there's a ton of work that, that people would never imagine came from, again, the same hand that has delivered so many of these fun family entertainment branded minor league baseball identities. Sure. Well, and I was, you know, I love noodling around on, on these websites and I was looking also at your commemorative logos, the 125th anniversary of Louisville Slugger. You know, certainly that is, you see Louisville Slugger's voice shining through there, right? Like, so if you, you know, if you show me that logo, I wouldn't have picked that out as, as Dan Simon's work. Right. And then also I really like this one for the, the Metrodome may it rest in peace site of what I still to this day think was the best world series ever played. And I can say that because it doesn't involve my, my Phillies. So 
I'm assuming um, you're talking about the one where Kirby Puckett famously said he's going to put the team on his back and he did just that. 1991. Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, now I, I have to say I was as a Phillies fan, I was rooting against the Braves. So maybe that's why I like that one so much. But uh, <laughs> as a designer, I would think it must be fun to, to happen across your work just out there in the environment. How often are you just, you know, are you traveling for work or, or you're out there just walking around and you see someone wearing something that you created? Uh, how often does that happen? It's happened enough. It hasn't happened so many times that I'm, that I've, that I, I don't get excited about it anymore. <laughs> um, it's, it's always a thrill for me to see something I've done on somebody who doesn't know that the person standing next to them or who just walked by them is the person who did that. I get a big kick out of that. I'm sure. I'm sure that must be really fun. How often do you get to go to the ballparks for the teams whose identities you've created? Unfortunately, not enough. Uh, The reason for that is because I've done identities for teams from coast to coast, north to south, all over the, the United States. And it's hard for for me to uh, to get to all of them because they're they're some of them are are out way are far away. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that said, as a baseball fan, I'll take any opportunity to go to a baseball game. Mm-hmm. So if I happen to be somewhere where there's a baseball uh, team and a game being played, whether I design the identity or not, I'm going to a baseball game there. And if it is a team for which I've designed the identity, it, it better yet. Well, then you then you get them on the horn and you demand to throw out the first pitch, I assume. Yeah. You know what? That's always been uh, you know what? I was just listening to your podcast with and I'm sorry, the the baseball bucket list podcast. Oh, yeah. The Anna that's uh, Anna DiTomaso for the the baseball bucket list podcast. And one of the questions Anna asks is, uh, is what's on your baseball bucket list, Uh those things you want to do that you haven't done yet. And for me, I had two bucket lit. Well, now, now it's not going to do any good if Anna wants me to be a guest on her podcast. (laughs) I'm answering the question on on your podcast, but (laughs) since you brought it up, the two things were, I always wanted a, a, a championship ring and I always wanted to throw out a first pitch now, but I didn't want to ask to do that because that it's just not the same. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I wanted it to happen organically. And fortunately for me, because of some great clients I have, the the ring has happened twice now. Um, And I never asked for it. They just felt (laughs) that my contributions were important enough that, uh, that I, I deserved a ring. And what's interesting is one was a team that, when we actually, I'll, I'll say what it was. It was the Memphis Redbirds. And okay. when we did that rebrand, the season, the inaugural season with that brand identity, uh, they, they set a team, a franchise record for victories and had a great year, not just on the field, but at the box box office. And, and Peter Freund, the, the owner of that team felt that the new identity contributed to all the good things that happened that year. And when, when he was ordering championship rings, he called me up and asked me what size ring I had. And I was, I was so 
honored that that he would consider what I do to have have had a part in the success of the team, whether it's on field or in the stands or both. Uh, it what an honor that was. And then on the other side of the coin, more recently, uh, the owners of the Visalia Rawhide. Um, who are no longer the current owners. It was their last season of ownership. And I did that identity, I don't know, 15, 18? No, I think I did that when I was in, still in Los Angeles. So that was over 20 years ago I did that. And their last year of ownership, which would have been, I believe, 2019, they won the first California League title of their, um, in their years of ownership. And so... 20 something years after doing that identity, they, they considered me still like a, a, a member of the team oh, and, that's great. And, and got me a championship ring. So those two meant a heck of a lot to me. The, um, the opening day, I'm sorry, the throwing out the first pitch hasn't happened. And I don't know that if it did happen, I would do it because I threw so much batting practice to my my son Casey and <laughs> and his teams that I tore my rotator cuff. Oh no. I've had rotator cuff surgery and it was the the reco- the recovery from that surgery was so painful that I oh never want to go through that surgery again. So I've not thrown a baseball in about 7 or 8 years because wow. because I don't want to risk damaging my rotator cuff again. So yeah. Asked me to do it, I might say, I, you know what? I have to think about it because I still really want to do it, but I, I don't know if I. Well, that's my story. We have to we have to keep that that sketching and mouse clicking shoulder, you know, healthy for you. There, we can't we can't have your get you knocked out of designing logos with a torn rotator cuff. So, I have to say, as you know from listening to Anna's podcast, uh, Baseball Bucket List that I have gotten to throw out the first pitch one time. And it was at an Idaho Falls Chuckers game. And the Idaho Falls Chuckers are another one of your brands. And that was that was a fun one to talk about too, with the whole double entendre of the name Chucker being someone who throws a baseball and also uh, a, a, you know, the, the bird C-H-U-K-A-R Chucker. So I have friends who are big birders, which is not a, ha- uh, a hobby that I've gotten into over time. But um, you know, they they love that name in particular because they think that little bird based play on words is really fun. So, yeah. well, and and that's an example of you know, in that case, the the team came to me with that name. Um, yeah. They and, and frankly, and and again, that one was done a number of years ago as well. And back then. Most of the time, the, the great majority of the time, teams came to me already either with a, if, if it was a new identity as opposed to a, a rebrand of an existing team mm-hmm. where they weren't changing their name, if it was a new identity, um, most of the time they already knew what they, what they wanted to be called. More recently, I would say at least half of the projects I do involve working with the teams on coming up with, with a new name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's actually one, one of my favorite parts of the process. I love doing the research and learning about, about the cities and, and the teams themselves. Um, whereas in the past, it was just like, oh, I'm just doing a logo. The name's given to me and you don't, you don't get to do that in-depth 
that deep dive um, into the, the city and the team, which it's something I really enjoy. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is about your process. And I'm, I'm sure it's far too detailed to, to answer, you know, quickly on a podcast, but can you give, you know, sort of a sense of, you know, how, you know, from start to finish, you know, when you're asked to create a new identity from scratch, working with a team, what does that process look like? Well, part of the process can involve and sometimes does involve visiting the city and um, trying to meet as many people. I, I, I often ask the, the teams to help me with that. Mm-hmm. Like, who, who do you think would be somebody it would be beneficial for me to meet with to get a, a true understanding of, of your town, your city? Um, but I've also found that that's not, it's not always possible. And, and frankly, during COVID, people weren't traveling. And I did I think I did two identities during COVID and you, you, you couldn't, um, you couldn't go to the cities. So one of the great things is everything is on the internet. And if there's something about the city that's not on the internet, then I will go so far as to say that it, it likely would not be something that would be a good direction for an identity for that team, because if mm-hmm. it's so obscure mm-hmm. that that somebody hasn't put it out there already, then it's it's something that that that's probably not going to work for that team. Now, that's not to say that something that people from the outside don't know about that city. That, it's not to say that that wouldn't be a good direction for the identity. It, it, you know, a perfect example is you mentioned the, the Great Falls Voyagers. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that, now for those who are not familiar with the identity, it that has a uh, ET theme, you know, an extraterrestrial theme to it. And the reason for that was back in the 1950s, I believe it was, and, and uh, the general manager of the baseball team in in um, Great Falls was going out in the, it was, I guess the mid morning to check on the field because it had rained the either overnight or the day before. And they had a game that day. And so he went out to the field just to check on its playability. And when he went out there, he saw something in the sky, a flash of that, that was not like, a, it wasn't a bird. It wasn't a plane. Um, wasn't Superman. Uh, and uh and he had a, I believe it was a, not a Super 8 camera. What would it be? A 16 millimeter camera, whatever. He had, he had whatever the type of film camera, somebody, portable film camera somebody might have back then. It was in his car. He ran to his car, got it out and got like something like 16 or 18 seconds of footage of, of this thing in the sky. Um, now, unfortunately, the footage is a little blurry and a little shaky, uh, both because of the quality of the camera and maybe his excitement at the time. And um, uh, that, that is, I, I believe to this day, the longest filmed um, sighting of, of a UFO. And now whether it was a UFO or not, well, it is a UFO because it remains unidentified. <laughs> it is unidentified, and, exactly. Uh, but what that was, they don't know. But to sure. this day, it re- not only is it the longest film footage of a UFO sighting, it's still one of the most famous UFO sightings 
in UFO history. And now I, I discovered that in, my, in the research I did when I was working with the team trying to come up with uh, name possibilities. And I, I think I can safely say very few people except for UFO fans know that Great Falls has that connection to UFOs but it made for a really good identity because it's a unique story specific to that city. Well, so first of all, I named it earlier when I was going through my list of the the brands that I really like. I actually got to go to a Great Falls Voyagers game this summer on a road trip with my kids through Montana. And I remember writing that article for sportslogos.net. And while you were talking, I called it up. You were spot on with the dates. It was 1950. Uh, the 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 general the general manager of the team who caught the uh, caught the footage was Nicholas Mariana, and it is called the Mariana UFO incident. Uh, so it is like you say, it is pretty famous with uh, within UFO circles, and I like that logo just because I I mean I like a lot of things about it. I do like the little green guys, the little little orbit. I was devastated when I went to a Great Falls Voyagers game this summer when. I could not get the dad hat with the orbit character on it. They had these gray hats with the green orbit character and they were sold out. I almost bought one online before I went and I thought, I'll just wait till I get to the game. And, and they were, they were sold out. And so to this day, I have not been able to find that hat still, but uh, you know, it, it's that, that logo outlasted the Las Vegas 51s, which just by virtue of being a triple A team, you know, probably more people knew about uh, and really, really liked. I think people were probably sad to see that 51's logo go. But yeah, the Mariana UFO incident was such a great story for a nickname, right? Like it's such a such a great sort of foundation for a brand. It's unique to the place. It's a fun story. It gives you all sorts of freedom to create this fun brand. And then even with that, you have the the double entendre of the the European, the French Canadian, I should say, the voyageurs who explored the upper Midwest and the and the West uh, in that area, because the the voyageur with a U uh, culture is is certainly part of that that brand. So that's absolutely. I mean, I love that you brought that one up because this is, you know, I I had no idea which of your brands we were going to talk about when we started uh, this conversation, just because there's there's so many of them, but that voyagers one is certainly a great one. Yeah, it's uh, and the fact that people in the city can claim claim that because it happened in their city, but that it had a direct tie to the baseball team as well, right? Um, just made it the perfect direction to, to go. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Is there a brand? And I'm not going to ask you. I know that you must get this question all the time. What's your favorite one? Right? Like, I'm not going <laughs> to ask you that question. I know there's not an answer to it, but. Is there a brand or are there some of brand, uh, some of the brands that you've created that you feel you are best known for? Well, I, I'd have to say the Savannah Bananas because they are, well, that being said, that doesn't mean people know I created that. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who might have seen the logo and might have loved the logo. They don't know who created that. But because of the phenomenon that that team has become, it transcends collegiate summer league baseball branding. Most collegiate summer league teams do not get exposure beyond their immediate market. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, first of all, it's not professional baseball. For those who don't know, it's played by current college players 
um, who can't be professionals because they would lose their amateur status. So they're still in college, need somewhere to, the, the, co the college baseball season ends in um, late May or early June. If you make it to the postseason, maybe go to the College World Series. When does that play? I think it ends around mid-June. Mm -hmm. So after that, there's still the whole summer to go. And these players need to keep playing baseball. And that's what these collegiate summer leagues are, are for. Jesse Cole, the owner of the, the Savannah Bananas, he it's not just baseball that goes on there. He is the P.T. Barnum of um, <laughs> of of professional sports. Yeah. Um, in the in the mold of of um, Bill Vec, the former owner of the uh, of the St. Louis Browns, the Chicago White Sox, um, who's also responsible for planting the ivy on the wall at, uh, at Wrigley Field. No kidding. What a great little tidbit. Right. So um, the Savannah Bananas have gotten mentioned on major networks on ESPN, which I guess is a major network. Mm -hmm. um, they've been had newspaper articles written about them, uh, magazine articles. They're, they, they're a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And, and thankfully, <laughs> that's what I love is when my work can get the exposure it gets because of, frankly, I don't take credit at all for the success of the bananas. That's uh -huh. Jesse Cole. That's his, his, his team, the players, the staff. Um, he's, he's a different operator than, than anyone out there. And he, he's made, he made something I created famous. Well, so this phenomenon with collegiate summer level teams marketing themselves beyond their own market really speaks to the the state of minor league baseball right now, right? Like a lot of teams are creating brands that they know will be sold to people who will likely never get to a game. And at the collegiate summer level, and I understand that these are, you know, these are not your logos, all of them, but uh, you know, there are collegiate summer level teams like the Portland Pickles, uh, most recently the Dub C Fish Sticks, uh, the Carolina Disco Turkeys, the Burlington Sock Puppets, which is one of yours and that is widely beloved out there in the world. The uh, oh, I I'm, I should mention the Danville Otterbots as well. These uh, these collegiate summer level teams are very much creating brands that w with the intention of selling their gear to people who will likely never get to one of their games. So, you know, the, certainly these teams out there creating brands, marketing them nationwide, and then sort of promoting the fact, hey, we've sold, you know, T-shirts to 37 states, that sort of thing. And I think that that's something that, you know, the minor league baseball at large discovered, I don't know, 25 years ago with the Carolina Mudcats, right? Like, hey, we can create brands. And obviously, I mean, the Carolina Mudcats are just one example, right? The, the Toledo Mudhens. Uh, the Lansing Lugnuts. I mean, a lot of these teams out there realized we can sell a brand without selling tickets, and uh, that must that must inform the work that you do uh, in creating a uh, in creating a brand. You know, when you're when you're creating uh, something for a new team, uh, you know, let's use the Fredericksburg Nationals uh, as an example. No. Let's not use the Nationals as an example because they're named for their parent club. I do love the uh, the Mary Washington logo that you did for the for the Nationals, but let's let's pick a team. Here you go, great one, the Canapolis Cannonballers, which is just you know has been so so well received. You know that that logo has just been so popular. 
I have a Cannonballers t-shirt. I, I can't imagine I'm going to get to Kannapolis anytime soon unless my baseball Palooza road trip takes me there. Um, I bought a Kannapolis Cannonballers cap because the logo is so much fun. The, the, the Dale Earnhardt mustached human cannonball who's flying through the air, this fun character, this sort of cool brand. I bought that because it's a fun brand without ever, you know, I'm not necessarily supporting, uh, you know, the Chicago White Sox, whose affiliate they are, right? Like I'm supporting a, a, a team that came up with a great brand that I think is fun to wear around. So here's me with one of my long questions again. It's what I do on this podcast. When you're creating a brand like the Kannapolis Cannonballers, and let's just talk about that one, are you envisioning it being purchased, it being out there in the world with people who will never get to a Cannonballers game? Yeah, certainly. Uh, the, the main goal of any brand identity that I develop is something I mentioned earlier, which is uh, I, I, I need to deliver the tools that the team needs to uh, achieve their goals. Um, that's the, that's, that's the, the main goal of, of any brand identity. But also equally as important is that the brand identity I create resonates with that specific community. Mm -hmm. um, there are, every team wants to sell as much merchandise as possible. There, that, that, that should go without saying. But I find that there are some brand identities out there, and I'm not going to name them, that have been done that were developed specifically to sell as much merchandise as possible um, to potentially sell to like people in all 50 states and beyond. Mm -hmm. That in doing that, they did not, they were not concerned about how it would resonate with that team's fans and, and the community in that, in that city. Um, hmm. And, and those are not successful identities. Yes, they'll sell merchandise, but that's not what branding is, is that's not the most important thing in branding. Um, if it appeals to people beyond your, your immediate geographic boundaries, uh, that's great. And that is something, yes, I do try to achieve with every identity I, I do, but not at, the, not at the expense of it resonating with, the, with that team's fans the most. Sure. No, and I think that's a great approach for, for sure. With the, you know, since we're talking about the Kannapolis uh, Cannonballers here, you know, with every minor league baseball logo uh, rebrand, I feel like there's this arc of sort of pushback from the people who have nostalgia for for the old name. Uh, the Cannonballers replaced the Canapolis Intimidators. The Intimidators were sort of forced into changing their nickname because they, you know, it was so closely tied to Dale Earnhardt and his estate that they didn't have full ownership over it and the ability, you know, the flexibility that they needed. So here comes you. Uh, a new designer for a new team name created this very successful logo that, you know, sort of nationwide is, is very well received, but locally there must have been pushback. I can only assume that there was pushback for people who had nostalgia for the old nickname. So how do you, as a designer, how do you deal with that sort of emotional component of a, of a fan base that, that had an emotional tie to an old brand that your new brand is replacing? Well, it goes beyond 
It, it certainly is an emotional tie, but it even goes beyond that. Um, the reality is it's human nature to be averse to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like change. Um, <laughs> nobody really, well, the only time you're going to like change is when there's something really bad. But with regard to, to sports branding, anytime you replace um something that has has been in a community for a, a decent amount of time, um, there's going to be pushback against changing that. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can accept that, then you take that pushback with a grain of salt. Sure. Um, with the Kannapolis identity, they had to change that identity. The, the people there love Dale Earnhardt. They loved him when he was alive. They, they love him even, even more since he's, he's passed. And they will always love him there. He's, he was born and raised in Kannapolis. Um, and he's, he's there. He is as native, of a, a native, as native of a son as a native son gets. And um, people did not want that identity changed. And, but it had to because they, they, that team did not own their own name. They're, the Intimidators were named the Intimidators because Dale Earnhardt was not only Canapolis' native son, but he was a part owner of the team. Mm-hmm. And so, and the Intimidator was his nickname. So that's why they were named the in- Intimidators. And everyone there, of course, loved that name. But his, the team couldn't own that name because it was his his nickname, sure. and that kept them that tied their hands with regard to some some marketing and merchandising things. And and they they bottom line is they needed to have an identity that they owned hook line and sinker, and both the name and and the logos. So I went I went into that project with knowing all of that and. When that identity was, um, when we were creating that identity, um, when I say we, here at Studio Simon and, and the team, it was very much a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very concerned about what the response would be to that, because I really felt like anything that we did was, was not necessarily going to be well received because it wasn't the intimidators. It, was, it almost seemed like a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. And when that identity was unveiled, the, the team did a great job of, of unveiling it. They did something called the big reveal, and they, they had a, a uh, 18 to 20 minute video put together that uh, talked about the, the history of the, the city of Kannapolis, the history of baseball in the city. The, and and they, they got what, what they did is they've got a. Um, a movie theater there called the Gem Theater, which is a, a wonderful, old, restored, um, wonderfully restored theater that that just recently got put on the National Register of Historic Places. Oh, cool! Um, you know, one of those one-off movie theaters that you would see in in small towns, and um, they they showed this video at the theater to. I think the theater held like eight or 900 people and it was, it was packed. There was not a, a seat available. It was the, the, the 
desire for people to be part of that was so big that they then put large screens outside the theater for the overflow because there was only so much room in the theater. So you had like the whole city of Kannapolis there to see this unveiling. And in the video, they eventually got to uh, the part where they were talking about Dale Earnhardt and, and the, the theater er erupted in applause. Right. And I'm sitting there, I'm up in the balcony taking this all in and I'm thinking, oh no, these people are, they're expecting Dale Earnhardt. Uh -huh. And they, and, but we're not actually giving them Dale Earnhardt. However, the identity was created in the spirit of Dale Earnhardt. You know, mm -hmm. he was, he was somebody that went, pardon the expression, balls out all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's what a human cannonball does. You know, right. they're, they're literally laying it all on the line, putting their life on the line. Um, each time they get in that cannon, you don't know if things are going to go wrong in the same way that Dale Earnhardt put it all on the line in every race that, that he, he was in. And so that's why that character was chosen. And also, as you pointed out earlier, you know, that mustache was done in <laughs> as an, an, an homage to... Um, uh, is that homage or homage? Homage. I, <laughs> I think they're both allowed. You can okay, use either to, one. <laughs> uh, to, to Dale Earnhardt. And, but just when that, when I knew the part in the video was going to come where the, the logo was going to be unveiled, I had no idea what the reaction was going to be mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I, because I didn't know if they, if what I did was going to come across all the things I meant to happen. I didn't know if that was going to come across to them. And then the logo comes and the theater erupted and it, 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 they're cheering, they're applauding. And I literally had chills running up my spine. Um, and as I walked out of the theater, I had a number of people come up to me and just say, they, they didn't know who I was going into the theater, but I was also in the video. Okay. So now people see, oh, you're the guy in the video. Right, right, and right. I had people come up to me and just say, thank you. Oh, cool. um, and that that meant so much to me because those were the people I was doing it for. And and it resonated with them. It was one of the greatest moments of 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 my career doing what I do. Well, that is a great story. Yeah, it gives me chills just hearing you tell that story. Right. Like that's uh, to 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 land something like that, you know, in, in front of a live audience. God, that's that's. To me, that's terrifying, right? Like that's, I mean, even this podcast, I go back and edit it before I put it out there on the world, right? So like to to be there for a live unveil uh, of your own work like that, uh, you know, I'm glad it was well-received as it should have been, right? Because as I said, it's, you know, all of these, I keep looking at these logos and thinking that one's my favorite, that one's my favorite. And, you know, I can't believe we haven't talked about the Hillsborough hops uh, yet either, right? Because that's, that's another one that is just, you know, uh, a classic, uh, an instant classic, as it were, sort of a, a, a new classic. I want to ask you uh, about you, Dan Simon, the baseball fan. You said you're a fan. You go to a game. I do the same thing. I try to plan work trips around, uh, uh, you know, where minor league baseball might be happening, uh, you know, certainly coordinate it with schedules. You are in Louisville, Kentucky, just down the street from the Louisville Bats and the Louisville Slugger Museum. Do you have a, a major league team? I do, and I'm going to apologize in advance because this is one of those teams that uh, uh, you that many people hate. They're the evil empire, <laughs> the New York Yankees. All right, but 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 
I, I hope people will cut me some slack because when, first of all, I was born in the Bronx, which mm-hmm, is where mm-hmm, the Yankees mm-hmm. play. So, sure. so that's, uh, I grew up uh, first seven years of my life in New York City, then uh, suburban New Jersey, just, you know, 20 or so miles outside of New York. My sure. dad still, so I grew up there, you know, that was my hometown team. But I am old enough that when, uh, when I was a boy and became a Yankee fan, the Yankees were horrible. Uh-huh. They, they, one of the players on the, the team just recently died. I think he died last year. His name was Horace Clark. Mm-hmm. And the, he was their second baseman. He was good, but not very good. Right. And that could be said about virtually everyone on the Yankee team from 1964 until 1976, which was this 12 year span where, where they did not only did they not make it to a world series in the, in that, those 12 years, but they, they were horrible. They were, <laughs> it was, it was the darkest years of, of, the the Yankees franchise. So, so you you earned your fandom. Yeah, I w- I that was not a good team that <laughs> that became my team. They later then won a whole bunch of champ- more championships. Obviously, before they had, had won, you know, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle years, they'd won a ton, and they've since won a bunch. But um, I I that embarrassment of riches was not uh, was not what was going on when, when I became a fan. <laughs> well, uh, I think that's funny. And I, it certainly does sound like you earned your fandom, but uh, you know, no one ever has to apologize to me for, for who they root for. Right. Like I just, you know, it's this, this fan, this fan gatekeeper mentality of, you know, the, the, the baseball fan telling other baseball fans who they can and cannot root for has always been a little weird to me. So, <laughs> so, so never apologize for being a Yankees fan. I'm a Phillies fan. And, uh, you know, I the the Yankees don't even make my my top five of of most hated teams. So it's they're in a different league, a different division. I've got other teams I can focus my my ire on. <laughs> Dan, I know we are going to speak again, and I I'm always so so grateful for how generous you are with your time, your insight, the great work that you're doing for minor league baseball. Uh, you know, I certainly think that the work that you have done over the years is is a big part of why minor league baseball branding is so popular right now and and you know that the the landscape has really shifted for minor league baseball in the last couple decades and you know your your work has been such a big part of that and and i'm i'm glad to get to have these conversations with you and i i thank you for your time i will ask you where can people find you uh where 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 are your preferred online venues for people to find you well, my website is studiosimon.net and dot, I believe dot com gets you there too. Okay. So studiosimon dot whatever you want to, well, not whatever, but dot net or dot com. <laughs> and then I'm on Instagram, um, studio underscore Simon. Dan, thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Um, Paul, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be in an industry that is worthy of a podcast devoted to what I do. <laughs> well, I hope that the, that the podcast itself is worthy of the industry. So I thank you for that. That's so good. <laughs> thank you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Dan.
Hang on, everyone. It's time for the Marvel-style post-credit sequence. Super happy to be joined by Zach Gold right now, a.k.a. MLB Paint, who has made a huge splash on Twitter recently with his interpretations of minor league baseball logos and also illustrations of, of players. Zach, hello. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're a huge hit on Twitter right now, and you're you're getting that thing that like every everyone on, on minor league baseball Twitter covets, which is attention from the teams themselves. You're getting all sorts of requests from teams to to have the MLB paint treatment of of their logo. Uh, I know a lot of teams are following you and retweeting you, and and I'm you know I'm watching your follower numbers just tick up and up and up. How did you get the attention of minor league baseball teams the way you have? Uh, it all kind of started with just one team. Um, the Hillsboro Hops were the first ones to reach out because I started just by drawing players. Um, so you can see like my header is a drawing of Mike Trout as a trout. Um, and then Hillsboro Hops reached out and they're like, hey, can you draw our logo? And they followed me and I was like, sure. And um, after them, I mean, every time I draw one, it seems like three more teams reach out. So uh, I have a never ending list of teams to draw, but that makes it exciting. And it's a great off season project. Well, so this, this interview is appearing at the end of, uh, of another interview I did with designer Dan Simon, who actually created the Hillsboro hops logo. So it's funny that they were the first team to reach out to you. What have you learned about creating logos themselves like what appreciation have you gained for the actual process of creating a, a logo a ton of appreciation um i keep joking around with my friends that i am not an artist and i've never even really been you know like good at drawing um but i mean just the process of creating a logo i've started to develop my own process you know the first thing i do is bring in their actual logo and just kind of copy their color palette so i know what i'm working with and then i get some uh, general shapes down and then just kind of add in detail work and shading as necessary. But, uh, you know, I can kind of just copy the logo or put my own spin on it. So the ability that some of these guys have to create that logo from nothing is insane. Well, and so I was going to ask you about this, actually, you sort of have two different styles of of logos that you do one, you know, like for instance, the one you did for the storm chasers, where it's like literally, you know, the storm chaser van following a storm cloud. And you, you know, you've done this sort of adorable little illustration uh, and then others where you more sort of copy the the logo itself, just in your own inimitable style. Uh, like for instance, the one you did for like the, the, the pit spitters, the Traverse city pit spitters and the, the Biloxi shuckers which are just a couple of sort of recent examples. How do you decide whether you're going to put your own spin on it or if you're just going to sort of try to recreate the logo? Yeah. First of all, I kind of want to take into account what the team wants. Sometimes they say specifically like, oh, can you do our, you know, on-field cap logo? So if they send me something like that, it seems like they kind of want it to stick more close to their actual logo. I personally like the other version of the logo better, just kind of, the more literal fun one. Right. Um, but to be honest, I only really do that if something kind of comes to my head. I don't want to force anything there because like I said, a lot of these logos are great. Like, especially the pit spitters, you know, like they have a great logo. So I'm not trying to force a redesign from MLB paint when I can just kind of take, you know, their great first logo and redesign it a little bit. Right. Have you had any interactions with teams that were like, less than positive or players where they're just like, Hey, what are you doing with our logo? Like, that's not for you. 
Um, not yet, mostly because I'm still just doing teams that have reached out to me, um, just because that list got so long. Uh, the only person I would say I did a Marcus Snowman drawing, and <laughs> it, apparently Marcus Stroman has a tendency to block people uh, if you at him. I didn't get blocked, but uh, okay. when I posted that drawing, a lot of people were like, oh, you might get blocked because he doesn't <laughs> like having random people tag him in photos, which is fair. Are there any logos that were like particularly hard or, or one that you, you know, just took longer than you thought it would? I would say the San Jose Giants one, which mm -hmm. was actually the San Jose Churros. I think right. that's kind of when I turned a corner. Um, until then, I had kind of just been using a lot of references to, you know, just kind of mimic things in my own style. But that was kind of the first one that I saw it in my head and had to put it on paper. So that was kind of difficult for me. And also, I've never tried to draw like a churro before. <laughs> so uh, that, you know, some shading was difficult there. Um, but I would say kind of the most high pressure logos are the ones for the White Sox affiliates because I'm a huge White Sox fan. So I really want to deliver on them. Um, and a little sneak peek, we have the Cannonballers one coming up and I'm really proud of how that turned out. So the Cannonballers, another Dan Simon logo, by the way. So, uh, have you, have you gotten familiar with sort of the, the, the different design firms out there and the, you know, like Brandios is a big one, obviously, and Dan Simon, who we just talked to and, there's, you know, Todd Radom and there, there's a ton of, of firms out there, but are, are you familiarizing yourself? Like, can you recognize like, oh, that's probably Brandios. That's probably Dan Simon. That's a different one. Not by name yet, but I can definitely, you know, tell the different styles or tell, oh, this is probably a similar person who did this first one. So right. it's pretty right. cool to see, you know, I'm also learning how many baseball teams are out there. I mean, obviously I knew about all of the minor league teams, but, uh, you know, you got the Appalachian League and the Atlantic League and all these independent like summer ball teams that are reaching out for me too. And it's really cool for me to see some of these teams that I've never even heard of. Well, I'm doing, I've been writing about minor league baseball team names and logos since 2014, and I'm not running out of ideas. So uh, yeah. I, I think you've got some time yet. You mentioned you're a student at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And you said that you're, you don't consider yourself an artist, although that's, you know, we could have a whole conversation about about that. I definitely think you're an artist. <laughs> well, what is your area of interest? What are you studying? I am actually a senior in civil engineering. So complete other side of the world there. <laughs> hey, there's a whole right brain, left brain thing going on here, obviously. So, well, normally this is where I would ask people, you know, ask you to tell people where they can find you on, on social media. But I think everyone knows it's at MLB underscore paint. And if you're not already following Zach uh, on Twitter, and Instagram, you absolutely should be because it's, you know, it's such a fun twist on, and, and such a fun interpretation on minor league baseball logos. And Zach, I appreciate you uh, getting up early and talking to me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. We will see you online. Sounds good. This podcast is part of the Curved Brim Media Network. Here are some of the other members of Curved Brim Media. Hi, this is Kelly Robinson, the Minor League Nerd. My YouTube channel explores the history of minor league baseball teams. More than just stats, we delve into team lineage, sharing stories from current franchises to obscure one-year wonders. This is Patrick and Corey of BaseballMapper.com. And we have made an interactive map to help highlight all baseball teams from the majors 
down to collegiate summer leagues. We want to bring you closer to baseball, so get on the site and find a team near you today. Hey everyone, it's Eric from the great state of Kansas. This is Johnny from the New Orleans Baby Cakes Memorial Museum. And we are the Earn Fun Average Podcast. Where we talk to a variety of guests about their love of baseball and have fun doing it. America, lower your standards. Average is what we do best. What's up, Bucketheads? I'm Anna DiTomaso, and each week on the Baseball Bucket List Podcast, I speak with a different fan about their favorite baseball memories, what the game means to them, and what's left to check off on their baseball bucket list. Hey guys, this is Patrick Larson from the Minor League Baseball Hat History Series. And in every episode, I go through the history of minor league teams through my personal collection of hats. You can find me on Twitter at at PatLarson1. I hope you guys enjoy. Hi, this is Ed Rivera of the Data Chronicles. Join me as I interview people just like you and players, coaches, GMs on the path that led you to become a fan of the sport. Learn more about Curve Brand Media at curvebrandmedia.com.